During the summer when the weather gets hot, I can only imagine how much time you plan to spend outside with friends or alone on your couch with that AC blasting. AT&T 5G and home internet keeps you connected so you can enjoy all the summertime vibes. Whether you're sharing pics from a rooftop, video calling your friends from an outdoor concert, or streaming your favorite show episode after episode. So stay connected to your favorite people and your favorite things with AT&T 5G and home internet. AT&T 5G requires compatible plan and device. Coverage not available everywhere. Learn more at att.com slash 5G for you. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of 1 carat plus and receive a free natural 1 carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those, too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, riding along in this big old jet plane, I've been thinking about my home. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be starting off with a little bit of wonderful retro futurism from the 1930s. Yeah, this was something. uh, So I read an article in CNN that prompted me to look into this. And it all started with an article that came out in Popular Mechanics in January 1930. Now, was that Popular Science or Popular Mechanics? Popular Mechanics. Okay. Uh, you can actually read the entire issue of January 1930 Popular Mechanics on Google Books. It, it, the whole thing is yeah. physically scanned in. There's a whole bunch of, of those old back issues of that, and it's really fascinating for the advertisements and for the articles. Well, for one thing, you know, th- this was this was a small piece about the future of commercial 
flight uh-huh. because commercial flight was pretty young in 1930. There hadn't been a whole lot of it. Yeah, the uh, Wright brothers. That was only like what 1903 or yeah, something. Yeah, and so the, there were bits of in the article such as, "Will you plummet from the sky?" Uh, <laughs> Will you? To Although, which the answer was maybe. <laughs> to be fair, I wonder that every time I get on an airplane. Yeah, it's. Uh, I understand you know. the physics, and I'm still like, Ugh. right, right. The whole uh, this seems shoddy. In defiance of the laws of nature, we will take flight. Well, this this article had a tiny paragraph in it uh, that was set aside for a specific uh, uh, subject, and that was this idea of an airport built over the surface of the ocean, specifically several airports mm-hmm. built every 400 miles or so across the Atlantic Ocean between Europe and North America. And the idea was not that planes had to land in order to refuel, uh, although that would definitely be a bonus. Because uh, they could, yeah. Because they had already done long, long distance flights before. Mm-hmm. But more for the comfort of passengers, uh, the amenities aboard early commercial flights were, let's say, even less impressive than flying coach today. Anyway, unless you were rich, in which case you might have all the comforts the wealthy could afford. Well, then you had a dirigible. Yes, you would. You would. You weren't so worried about speed. Right. You were worried about luxury. But uh, they wanted to put an airport about every four hundred miles across the Atlantic, and uh, it didn't go into a lot of detail about the actual mechanics of such a thing. Uh, It did essentially say that these airports wouldn't truly be floating on the ocean. They would be supported by columns that reached all the way down to the sea floor. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the airport itself would remain 80 feet suspended over the surface of the water. So it would appear to float over the ocean. Mm -hmm. But it Um, wouldn't be, yeah. But it wouldn't truly be floating. But that's what we're going to talk about today, are, are floating airports. Uh, these, by the way, the ones that were talked about in Popular Mechanics, never happened. Uh, just no one wanted to put down the money, I guess. According to Popular Mechanics, each floating airport would cost about $12 million. So $12 million in 1930 would be about $170 million in today's money. That's not that much, really. Which is actually a low estimate compared to some of the other plans that actual humans have actually cooked up. Right, right. Well, it could very well be that Popular Mechanics was being overly optimistic about the construction costs of such an airport. So uh, it's, it's just one of a few early suggestions for this kind of approach. There was actually another one that came along just a couple of years later. Yeah, in uh, February 1934 issue of Popular Science, I came across an article called Uncle Sam Asked to Build Floating Ocean Airports. And Man, <laughs> It must be terrible when you're an icon uh-huh. and you're not even a real person uh-huh. and people come to you and like, hey, can you build a floating ocean airport for build me? Build it. Build it for me. Yeah. I, I asked Mr. Peanut the other day if they would you know, co-sign on a home loan and that was probably unfair of me. Uh, well, this was about a uh, this uh, Canadian inventor and engineer named Edward Robert Armstrong's long-running idea for these things called seadromes. And these were truly, as proposed – floating airports. Uh, so uh, a sea drome would be a 1,225 foot long landing area and refueling station floating 100 feet above the water on a series of 28 buoyancy tanks that are partially submerged and also 
had ballast there to help, uh, you know, prevent it from uh, rocking too much in the waves okay. and stuff like that. And these things would have overnight accommodations, and they'd essentially be run like a ship. Also, like a ship, the Sea Drum would have propellers for self-guided navigation if necessary, though under most circumstances, they would remain anchored in place by steel cables, which are attached to a buoy, which is in turn attached to a heavy sunken anchor. And if you all want to see what a picture of it looks like, I've got a little link here you can take a look at. Uh, it It looks like those great old retro-futurist uh, illustrations of the, you know, the future. It has great girders and beams and, and all of that sort of industrial magic that's wonderful. But, so what it called for was sort of like you were talking about, a series of stations throughout mm-hmm. the Atlantic Ocean. It called for five sea dromes between the United States and Spain. It's at about at the latitude of Washington, D.C., that would work as refueling stations for transatlantic flights. And uh, the sea the drums would each be about three hours' flight apart from each other. And one of the rationales given in the article, I don't know if there's really all that much to this, but what the article claimed was that uh, planes could transport heavy payloads with greater speed since the refueling stations would require the planes to carry less fuel in addition to their payloads. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't have to put all the fuel on board that it takes to get across the ocean. Right. Uh, You could just sort of, you know, fill up one-fifth of the tank each time. But according to this article, uh, the U.S. government was, quote, interested in the proposal, and Armstrong was currently seeking federal funding for the project. Somehow, it just didn't work out. I don't know. I'm guessing they should have asked someone besides just Uncle Sam. (laughs) Right. I found I, at least Santa and the Easter Bunny to right. get in on it. Yeah. You yeah. Know, arguing, a, arguing with a poster just doesn't, uh, trust me, I've been there, doesn't really get you anywhere. Well, I, I imagine that in 1934, uh, there were several other things going on in this country other than like a pressing need to get more stops between us and certain parts of Europe. Uncle well, Sam <laughs> had this bizarre plan to build landing strips out of people. He was always <laughs> saying, I want you to land planes on. And just a few <laughs> years later, there'd be plenty of unemployed to use them as ballast. Uh, oh. Yeah. No, uh, moving on from Gallo's humor. Uh, so these projects didn't work out, but it didn't stop people from thinking about the floating airport concept in general. And in fact, it has, there are going to be so many puns in this, and I apologize, resurfaced (laughs) many decades later. And uh, uh, you might want to know, like, well, why would anyone be interested in a floating airport in the first place? Like, what's... Why not just build a regular airport? Yeah, what's the appeal? Well, I mean, part of this is to think about what is the purpose of an airport? Obviously, it's to land planes, but you, you can't land a plane just anywhere, Right. You want to land it closer to the destinations where people want to go. So, uh, so land scarcity and local land scarcity matters. And sure. it, it's not that there's not enough land on earth to land airplanes on, that in many cases there's not enough flat, stable real estate near the big population center where people are trying to get to. Uh, yeah. right. Yeah. No one is saying that New York State does not have enough land in it, but the Isle of Manhattan specifically. Yeah. Yeah. not it's, large it's pretty it's pretty jam-packed with stuff already yeah yeah, yeah uh, there's there are a lot of places around the world where the populations are either coming close to reaching the capacity that their airport can provide or are beyond that capacity mm-hmm. and it's not as simple as saying well why don't you just build another runway 
because sometimes there's just not any space to do that. You can't really add on to some existing airports. And then the other the other alternative is to build an additional airport. Mm-hmm. But there may not be any flat land near the city that's available for that. I mean, yeah. think about Japan. That's a great example. Japan has extremely densely populated cities, and uh, it also there's not a lot of flat land. Yeah, you got a lot of mountains. Uh, Sure, yeah. Well, and and furthermore, when you start talking about building a second airport, then you're getting into that problem that we've discussed before on this show about adding. uh, more infrastructure problems rather than kind of doubling up with the infrastructure that you've already built. Yeah. Well, and actually, and there's some cases where there's been discussion of creating a floating airport to completely replace an existing airport. So it's not even to just supplement what is already there. It may be... So that we could raise that parking lot and, and put up some more high-rise condos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Boy, Ponce Market has really opened our eyes to the future, hasn't it? Okay, anyway, so land scarcity is obviously a big issue. That's probably reason number one why people have looked at floating airports. The idea that if you can't really find flat ground that is not already taken up by something else, what about any water that's nearby? You don't have to mm-hmm. worry about flat ground there. You can, If you can build something on water and make sure it's steady enough – then that could solve a lot of issues, depending on where the city is. Obviously, you kind of have to be near water. But a lot of our major population areas happen to be because, well, I don't know if you noticed, but water is something that we need. Well, yeah. Also, trade routes having been what they were yeah. uh, for a long time. Yes, seaports yeah. were kind of a thing. Our city of Atlanta is kind of an exception because we were sort of a, a stop for a lot of different land routes mm-hmm. along the eastern seaboard. Our rivers are made of rails. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Atlanta used to be terminus. It was the place where all these rail lines terminated. And uh, so it's a little different. But but most cities tend to be not too far from uh, a coastal region. And that's where you could put something like a floating airport, obviously. Mm-hmm. be a lot harder to do it in the mountains. So that's reason number one. Another reason, though, is the idea of cutting back on noise pollution. And it's not that uh, an airport over the water would magically be more quiet. It's that... There aren't as many people living on open water, so air, airplanes coming down and landing at an airport that's on open water, you wouldn't have as much uh, noise pollution there because it, it wouldn't be affecting anybody. I mean, the noise would be there. It just wouldn't be affecting people. Uh, right. right, right. And and that's more than just an annoyance. Uh, if you live in an area with heavy, continual noise pollution, like an airport, uh, that puts adults at possible risk for hypertension and thus cardiovascular disease. And uh, kids in that situation could be at risk for stuff like impaired reading comprehension and long-term memory, uh, plus higher blood pressure, again. Um, so getting that kind of industry out of our neighborhoods could do real good for people. Yeah, so there's there's some actual like positives that you can point at right away and say, all right, all right, I can see why you would consider this, but there's, there's some also potential negative impacts as well. Doesn't sound cheap. Uh, yeah. Super not cheap. I'm guessing uncheap, yeah. if there's an opposite of cheap. Yeah. Oh, there is. It's expensive, and that's what this would be. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, but um, aside from the monetary thing, there's also environmental concerns. Sure. Because, you know, it's taking a source of noise pollution and heat sink due to all that pavement and, uh, you know, local land environment destruction and putting all that bad stuff smack into the middle of an ocean. Uh, is that good times? Is that worth it? Yeah. Uh, and when we get into talking about specifics... I'll, I'll mention some of the the uh, uh, the stuff that various groups have s- said, mm-hmm. like, oh, the environmental impact would be minimal. 
Um, I'm somewhat skeptical of that. Uh, at least in a few cases. I'm I'm pretty highly skeptical. I, I think that in general, when you're covering a few square miles of ocean space with something that didn't used to be there before... There's you, probably going to be an environmental impact? Some kind of impact. And oceans, <sighs> as we have said before, are tricky. There's so, more ocean than truck. So negative. So negative. <laughs> um, no, I, absolutely. You're absolutely right. But hey, but wait a minute. I've got a question. Sure. Okay. Don't we already have floating airports? Because I've seen pictures of aircraft carriers. It looks kind of like that's sort of what they are. So kind of if you well, fly a fighter jet. Exactly. Uh, and yeah. I do. <laughs> do you? Wow. Not. I was about to say, I was learning so much more about Lauren today. Uh, so yeah, it wasn't long after the invention of heavier than air aircraft that people started saying, huh, I wonder if you could put it on a boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, brave pilots, some might say crazy, began to experiment with try- landing on and taking off from boats. Uh, in fact, the, the earliest aircraft carriers were converted merchant vessels mm-hmm. where they built a flat deck on top of the existing boat's deck and then asked people to kind of try and take off a, from it or land on it. The earliest attempts, by the way, not 100% successful. Uh, but this developed over time and you began to see actual ships dedicated from the the design process all the way through construction to be an aircraft carrier. And so before... World War II, we had dedicated aircraft carriers sailing around the ocean. In fact, I think the British had the earliest ones. Uh, now, they tend to be relatively small compared to a commercial airport runway. Mm-hmm. The runways on aircraft carriers may be, might be about 300 feet long. And they often use catapult systems. In fact, they all have some form of catapult system to propel a jet forward so that it, it gets the speed necessary to take off. Mm-hmm. And, and also it, to, to catch them, kind of, yeah, when they, they have land. A, they've got a cabling system uh-huh. where the when the jet is landing, a hook catches a cable, and that helps the jet come to a stop as, instead of just rolling right off the other end of the aircraft carrier and into the ocean. Uh, so that's a very short runway. 300 feet is incredibly short. A medium-sized commercial aircraft requires a runway of six thousand feet. Oh. So way bigger. Oh, that's Twenty more. times. Twenty times longer. Yeah. And larger jets need even longer runways, like eight thousand feet. So what are you gonna do? The obvious solution here is to have passengers fly in Harrier jets. Yeah, that that sounds great. Uh-huh. That I'm in. Might be a little expensive. Eh. And, and you might be you might be tying your luggage to the outside of the jet. Uh but it would definitely be an exciting trip. <laughs> Will they still have Biscoff cookies? And I don't know that you'd be holding on to your cookies in a Harrier jet, honestly. Uh, although I've always wanted to fly in a, like a, have an experience of being able to fly in one of those, either a stunt plane or a fighter jet type of thing. That's. If anyone has a hookup out there, call us. Yeah, Wait, I'm you, still waiting mean, on my hookup for a helicopter. But You mean a uh, shorter vertical takeoff jet or just any fighter jet? Really any fighter jet. Uh, right. Vertical takeoff and landing jet would be super cool. Yeah. But really any jet is, is what I'm talking about. But no, that's not really a practical solution, obviously. So if we wanted to build a floating airport, it would have to be of a significant length in order to meet the requirements of commercial aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Then also with with aircraft carriers, the traditional kind, they have some problems with pitch and roll. I mean, obviously, if it's if the if the swells are really, really big and the aircraft carrier is, in fact, 
moving, it makes it r- much more difficult to have a safe landing on that that uh, surface. And that might be a level of risk that could be acceptable in some military applications, but it wouldn't be acceptable in a commercial flight. Sure. So you have to have a surface that is going to be as steady as you can possibly make it. And uh, that means you have to come up with an alternative to your classic aircraft carrier. Uh, but people have done this. Like we were saying before, like this is a thing that people have gotten through a number of planning stages for. Yeah, yeah. We've even had a model made of this and had aircraft land and take off from such a model. Uh, that model would be one that was constructed in the mid-1990s. That's when a group of companies, mostly shipbuilders, got together in Tokyo to discuss the possibility of constructing what we now call very large floating structures, or VLFS, is. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I love it when the word large is in any kind of acronym. I like it, it when happy. the word very gets in there. Uh-huh. <laughs> very large floating structures, thank you very much. Uh, and it was specifically for the purposes of an offshore airport, although they proposed other uses for such a, a structure as well. And uh, they wanted it to float in Tokyo Bay, and so they formed what they called the Technological Research Association of Mega Float. Mega Float. Yeah, it's not a transformer, sadly. Uh, they the How idea can was we be sure. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it transformed from lots of smaller segments into a very big segment. Uh, yeah, because they built it out in sections. Exactly, yeah, sort of out of tiles, almost. Yeah, yeah. I think of I think of like like uh, like old Hot Wheels tracks where they snap together. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's kind of the same sort of idea. So so each segment was pretty huge. It's 300 meters by 60 meters. Uh, and the overall length of the full airport, if they were to build uh, the, the, the big thing, it would have been 5,000 meters long and 4,000 meters would be runways. So 5,000 meters long for, uh, for our non-meter readers is about 3.1 miles. That's yeah. a big floating structure. Yeah, yeah. And so the uh, actual individual segments. I just had a question. Sure. I never thought of this before. Uh, I, I don't know what the answer is. What is the largest floating structure ever created by humans? Mm. That's an excellent question, and I don't know the answer either because I didn't think about it before we did this. But I, I would imagine it couldn't be much larger than that for a floating structure. Most of the floating structures I know about that are big are things like oil rigs. Right. And they're they're large, but they're not 3.1 miles in size large. Right. At least not the ones I'm aware of. Um, in this case, the actual individual tiles themselves were big, 300 uh, meters by 60 meters. Now, that means uh, three, 300 meters, that's more than 300 yards, which means that these individual tiles were longer than three football fields laid down, you know, end to end. Right. And they each of these segments were built on on uh, tanks that you know sealed tanks that allowed it to float. That's what created the buoyancy. And so you had these floating segments that then were towed into Tokyo Bay, snapped together. Uh, they had a series of clamps, Joe. Ah, uh, nice. <laughs> And uh, then welded together. They actually talked about how they had to, to, you know, there might be water in some chambers that would have to be pumped out. They'd, they'd then be welded and sealed together, welded and sealed together. And then ultimately you got this 1,000 meter long runway that was kind of the scale model for the overall airport. Um, they hypothesized that due to the size of this structure, it would be so large that it would span multiple wave cycles. So... 
you know, ocean waves are physical waves, but they behave the same as other types of waves. And uh, in fact, the idea was that this structure would be so large that the waves that would encounter the mega float would cancel each other out uh, so that you would you would not get a net movement mm-hmm. with the actual airport. Uh, you would only get a tiny little, little deflection, like a little deflective movement uh, due to the waves, and it was referred to as the hydroelastic response or just elastic response. Although in the report they said it was, quote, hardly noticeable, end quote. <laughs> but they, to be fair, they said e- even though it was a minute amount of movement, they wanted to do extensive testing to make sure that this was not going to end up causing any you know, issues, any safety concerns for aircraft. Obviously, that would be uh, a flaw so great to cause them to completely abandon the project entirely. Uh, so they determined uh, this probably isn't going to be a problem. We will test it to be absolutely sure. And they began to, to test this and said that everything seemed to go pretty well. Um, however, uh, they it's not there anymore. What happened? Well, they, they tested it, and then the experiment was over, and then they dismantled it. I mean, again, it was only meant to be a model, like a 1,000-meter-long model. Mm-hmm. Um, they were able to show that there were some interesting safety features here. Uh, they, they showed that the overall structure w- could remain buoyant even if one section suffered damage. They said if there were a catastrophic crash, and of course you hope that never happens, but if there were, then – Depending upon the level of damage, the structure should still remain fine. For one thing, if there was uh, a fiery accident, most of that heat would dissipate into the air. It wouldn't transfer into the structure itself. The structure is made out of steel, which is pretty resilient stuff. Uh, the If it cracked the top of the tanks, it should still remain fine. Uh, and if it even caused cracks all the way through the tanks to the bottom... It still would remain buoyant, assuming that it's damaged just one section, because the other sections would keep it floating. And so then you could send in repair crews to repair whatever the damage was and keep the whole structure safe as a result. Um, they also talked about how, with it being segmented, if you're talking about like a, a massive damage where you need to replace a segment, it's more or less modular. So you could, in theory, do that. It would still, you know, the airport would have to go offline for a significant amount of time. But you could remove a seg- segment and replace it with a new one if that was absolutely necessary. Now, with a structure like this, I would be kind of worried about what might happen in the case of extreme weather uh, events or – Like a uh, tsunami. Exactly. Or, or, or a heavy or, storm. Or an yeah. earthquake. Right. Yeah. So it's supposed to be earthquake-proof, unlike a normal airport. So – not only earthquake proof, but to the point where you could potentially continue to operate the airport in an earthquake situation. So you'd be able to have people landing and not just circling the city until, you know, an assessment can be made as to whether or not the airport is safe to land on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's interesting. And they even said that it could be tsunami proof because it'd be far enough out in the bay where the swell of water would not be so great. They talked about how the swell of water gets the tallest as it approaches land. Right. And that it would be far enough out where it would be able to weather that without it having a significant impact on the movement of the airport itself. It would only be after it passed through where the airport had been moored off the coast of 
uh, Tokyo that a tsunami wave would be large enough to, to start affecting people. And by then it had already passed where the airport was. Uh-huh. Uh, that is important to note that it is it is a structure that would be moored. It would be tied to essentially an anchor point or several <laughs> anchor points. So that it couldn't float away. Right. Yes. You don't just have like, so have you uh, been to the airport li- lately? I uh, would have gone yesterday, but I, I don't know where it is now. <laughs> Last I saw it was sailing toward China. Like that would be awkward. Um, so yeah, they've, they, it has a mooring point where it would be anchored to the mainland. Um, or at least the, the rest of Japan in this case. So it, it was really interesting. Again, I don't know how much credence to give the report. Uh, it wasn't like this was an investigation by a third party. Right. That said, hey, we looked into this. We looked at their experiment. It all seems to be on the up and up. This was a report filed by the very entity that had an interest in having. And now, granted, I would imagine any entity that does have an interest in building this would want to be as transparent as possible. Because if something were to go wrong, mm-hmm. that's a huge amount of accountability, right? Like you, you wouldn't want to say, "Ah, oh, yeah, this airport is going to work fine for you. I gotta leave town, but this airport's gonna be great for you guys. Yeah, ho- hopefully it wouldn't be like, yeah, we checked all the safety. Bring all your orphans and kittens out right. here. It's right, gonna be great. We're gonna be just like you know, fruit stands and big panes of glass and nuns. Everything that you know you don't want to be involved in, like your your you, basic are, car chase. Yeah, why are you imagining a car chase? Because I was just sitting there and think, like all the things that automatically mean that you are going to see something really dangerous happen. Oh. Yeah. Okay. You can just put that out there. Actually, to be fair, they even said that an alternate use for these structures Is instead it of an airport. Nunnery? Well, no. An but open air market. An emergency oh. gathering place. Oh, yeah, okay. Sure. The idea that if there were, say, safe, a massive yeah. earthquake, mm-hmm. you could you could evacuate people or you know there's a tsunami on the way. You could evacuate people to one of these very large floating structures where they would be out of harm's way for the duration of that event. Now, it may very well mean that there's still lots of work to be done afterward because the city itself could be you know, very much affected by it. But the people, the human lives could be saved. And you could make this an emergency uh, situ- uh, response kind of situation. Even to the point where if you had constructed these pieces but had not yet deployed them, you could send them to a place where you know there's going to be a problem. And it could serve as like almost like an emergency raft for hundreds or thousands of people. Just kind of cool, really. And they also had a segment about the environmental impact. And here's where some more skepticism comes in. Uh, they said the environmental impact would be minimal. Really, the biggest thing it would impact would be phytoplankton, which would just move out of the way to a different area around the megastructure. And then the zooplankton would follow the phytoplankton. And, and then so the on and so forth. fish would follow the zooplankton. Yeah, everything would be cool. And it's just floating. It's not like there's anything disturbing the seabed. So really you just – Except for the mooring. Yeah, well, but the mooring the mooring points exist anyway. It's just oh, okay. that the structure would be moored to an existing mooring point because you're talking about a big bay. But I mean, you would literally be casting shade on the seafloor, you know. <laughs> I like that, I like that you guys are just silently judging me. 
I was waiting for Joe to react. Sometimes oh. Joe's reactions are really beautiful. Uh, no, no, I'm I'm so I'm so dubious about this thing um, about that environmental impact part. But uh, you know, I'm sure. It's 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 really just like like the potential for uh for chemical runoff. Sure, yeah. I uh, mean, you you have jet fuel, you have exhaust from the planes. Yeah, you've got oil that's going into places that oil goes into. Uh, yeah, all, all, all kinds of stuff on a flat surface that's on the ocean, right? Yeah. So then, a heavy rain hits. That are, there's going to be runoff. Sure. Yeah, I mean, unless you have some kind of collective yeah, technology, the, it needs a lip. It's like a, it needs to be like a rimmed baking pan, ser- right. like like a serious set of gutters. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, and, and it's then, very possible that it incorporated something along those lines in order to do that. But I didn't come across that in any of my research. I'd also, I'd, I'd just be concerned. I, I know I'm like harping on this now. I feel like, but I, but I'd be so concerned about um, uh, all of that pavement that you use. You know, pavement absorbs heat. That heat goes somewhere. Is it distributed down into the water? Are we warming oceans further? Uh, well, I did read something about what, one of these uh, one of these floating. I can't remember which one. Maybe Jonathan, you'll recall uh, that said like, "Look, you know, even if there's a fire, this thing will be fine." It's it's just that was gonna... yeah, mega float. They yeah, said, okay. they said that. Um, uh, fire would be completely contained locally. Well, and... the structure would be fine. Are yeah. the fish chill about it? I think they said it. Would, according to them, again, it would just radiate upward, right? Oh, okay. well, that's what they're saying was heat would dissipate in the air. But yeah. I mean, honestly, that's... without without seeing a third party investigation on this and seeing what the environmental impact is, I, I, th- I like you, Lauren. I I feel that there's probably a larger impact than we are led to believe in the report. I, I suppose that there could be some kind of thermal insulators to prevent any heat that happens on the top of the surface from bleeding down through the bottom. Of and it. it's also possible that Tokyo Bay may already be an environment that is not the most conducive to life. But that doesn't mean we should make it worse. Come on, let's go for Blinky the four-eyed fish. <laughs> but at any rate, so that that was an experiment. And by 2000, they had dismantled it. They continued to analyze the data. Uh, but it, the mega float no longer exists. It's not in Tokyo Bay anymore. But there was talk of a sequel. Yeah. The Revenge Mega Float Returns. Or Electric Boogaloo? Uh, well, it's called, it was gonna be called Mega Float 2. Oh. But so far it hasn't come together. Cause it's modular. Uh huh. Yeah. Hasn't happened yet. Uh, but there was talk of doing it, so it may still happen at some point, but it hasn't, um, it hasn't happened since 2000. So, and yet there's still this need to increase that that capacity for air travel. So it could be that it's revisited in the future. Yeah, uh, but, but there have been for other. Now, pro- could we consider that talk scuttled? Yeah, I, that the that idea has has just sunk. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, guys. Uh, that do we do we have any other proposals to talk about? Sure, plenty. Yeah, the couple in uh, San Diego. San Diego oh, yeah. desperately needs another airport. Yeah? Uh, yeah, so San Diego, you got a city, big city, mm-hmm. Southern California. Mm-hmm. It's got an airport with one runway. Oh, no. That's very small. Busiest runway in the United States because it's an international airport. You got a lot of flights that need to go in and out, a lot of flight delays because you've got the one runway to work with. And the city of San Diego has been struggling for a long time to figure out how to expand because it, it can't really – doesn't have any space to build onto the existing airport, which means you need to build a second facility. And there aren't a whole lot of options. One of the options they were looking at 
uh, would have required a military facility to relocate, which the city is not eager to see happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of money to, that sure. goes into having Lots a military facility there. Sure. sure. So what do you do? Well, there are a couple of different groups that have proposed uh, the floating airport option. Right. Yeah. Uh, so one of them actually dates all the way back to 1993, which that predates the mega float. Now, the reason I decided to say mega float first instead of San Diego is that the mega float, at least a model of mega float, was built. Uh-huh. No such luck with this uh, approach. Mm-hmm. But in 1993, a company called Float Incorporated uh, <laughs> <coughs> yeah, suggested a very large floating structure using a technology they called the Pneumatic Stabilized Platform, or PSP. Which sounds like you would have an airport on a bunch of like pistons, like pneumatic pistons that could automatically adjust the pitch and roll so that it would maintain a relative, like relative to the ground, it would it would look like it's staying flat, but relative to the ocean, it would just keep on making minute movements to stay stable. This made sense to me once I read about what they had in mind for the buoyancy. Uh, So, so it was the using the idea of trapped air. Yeah. Air, air trapped by the water, yeah, by the water pressure. I was just thinking of pneumatic systems, and I was making it way more complicated than it really is. And mm-hmm. in fact, their ex- their approach would be to have an airport resting on a collection of cylinders that are vertically aligned. Okay. With the bottom open, so that you have this trapped air uh, that's against the ocean and ocean surface, and it's the trapped air that is keeping the the airport buoyant, floating. And uh, I, when I saw that, I thought, oh, this is this is way more simple of a machine, which is good because the simpler a machine, the less likely it is to break down. Right? Uh, yeah. Sure. You know, you don't want it to be too complicated. And I would un- I would imagine that underwater pistons would run into a little bit of mechanical problems. Probably. At some point. Yeah, at some point. <laughs> they, there would be some maintenance issues sooner or later. Uh, but no, this makes sense. If, if you're trying to picture this, just think of, I don't know, take a series of drinking cups, yeah. turn them upside down, put something on top of them, and then put them in the water. To make it really fun, fill the drinking cups first, then empty them by drinking whatever it is you put the, in there, then turn them upside down and put them in water. Just making fun things to do. And you're not allowed to go to the bathroom until you do <laughs> This is the summer edition of forward thinking. Um, no, but th- th- you're exactly right. That would be that would be a way of making like a model of what this proposal was. Um, so the airport itself would have floated about three miles off the tip of Point Loma in San Diego, and they wanted to call it Floatport, uh, and it was going to be connected to the mainland via a tunnel that would empty out onto Interstate Eight. Uh, the designers envision Floatport not just as an airport, but as a shipping facility. Uh, it would also be a mass transit hub for land, sea, and air. It's a very um, ambitious kind of plan, and they presented it to the to the city. And in 2003, San Diego formally rejected the proposal. Uh, they cited reasons including uh, accessibility, safety, airfield configuration. Uh, the part the, that part they were saying the uh, the way the the um, runways would be oriented would be in a north-south direction and really it should be east-west for the best uh, uh, best performance considering airflow mm-hmm. but if you did it east-west and you had it off the point uh, uh, off of Point Loma then it would end up requiring uh, aircraft to fly in very low over a lot of neighborhoods thus you get that noise pollution again uh, right mm-hmm. 
So you had this issue, like, well, if you do it north-south, pilots are going to have more trouble landing the aircraft, which is not good. Uh, if you do it east-west, then you're going to create more noise pollution, which if your argument is that an offshore airport creates less noise pollution, you have invalidated that part of your support. Um, the accessibility thing, they said, well, we're a little skeptical that you could create an uh, underground or underwater tunnel to a floating structure that then attaches to the mainland. How do you do that in a way where if the structure can move but the tunnel can't move – there's an issue there. Like, what? how does that work? And even if you could get it to work, how expensive would that be? And how could you make sure that that structure would remain stable in all sorts of type, types of situations? Mm-hmm. And um, so there was just a ton of skepticism, not to mention the worry about the environmental impact. That was also an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all that skepticism did not stop another team from putting together a similar proposal a few years later. Right. So this gets us up to 2009. And Adam England, who was an entertainment lawyer, also has a couple of IMDb credits to his name. He's appeared in a couple of films. No relation. To Robert England? No relation to Robert England. Spelled the same way, though. I looked it up. (laughs) He is not related to Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger would help make a lot of really great floating puns. He could certainly make your dreams come true. So it, uh, so he decided to pitch his own floating airport idea to San Diego. Oh, this is the one with the good name. Yeah, yeah. So he, he gathered together a group of collaborators and pitched the Oceanworks Offshore Airport. But the good name, I would argue, is his company. Right. Uh, can, can we spell this first, actually? Because sure, sure. I think it's funnier if you encounter it this way. Because it took me like four seconds to get it. Mm-hmm. And then I groaned audibly. Right. Because when you read it, you don't get the effect of the audible pun. So it's spelled... E-U-P-H-L-O-T-E-A. And it's pronounced Euphlodia. Oh, I was thinking Euphloti. Nope. That's what I got, too. Euphlotia. It is actually pronounced Euphlotia. As in, like, utopia. Yeah. I'll take Euphloti, actually. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and jiff this. Euphloti. That's fair. That's fair. I pronounce jiff as gif. I'm not going to argue. That you pronounce it Euphloti when it's clearly Euphlodia. Uh, so their design was more than just an airport. <laughs> it was a four-story floating facility with an airport for a roof that could house any number of ventures, including oh. uh, hotels and restaurants, research facilities, and more. As long as you don't mind the noise of an aircraft landing on top of your house every couple of minutes for every day ever. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know how they would have handled the noise issue for anyone in that facility. Like, Hand how out you... those earmuffs people wear at shooting ranges. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um, and, and to be fair, this is a proposal that hasn't completely died. As far as I know, England is still pushing for it. Uh, the structure he proposed would be three square miles in surface area and have two runways. Uh, his plan called for it to be moored 10 miles off the coast of San Diego with underwater light rail connecting it to the mainland or instead of underwater light rail, if that was deemed uh, infeasible, going with high-speed ferries to just ship people back and forth from the mainland to the airport and and so on and so forth. Uh, According to England, it would have been more than 200 million square feet of office space that would be available, which was actually more than what was available in the city of San Diego itself. So you could double... The amount of office space if you made it all a big office facility. Um, 
And the hope was that it would actually use renewable energy sources to power the whole thing, including generators that were using wave motions as well as wind power to create electricity. And it would also have a desalination plant to make fresh drinking water from seawater. Oh. So it incorporates a lot of stuff we've talked about here on Forward Thinking. It's yeah, kind think, of a – I think we've talked about desalination for San Diego specifically before. Yeah. Huh. Yep. We've talked about – and we've certainly talked about wind and, and wave power in oh, previous sure. episodes. So the idea is that this would be kind of the, the airport of the future that is self-sufficient, uh, which is a pretty cool idea. Still a lot of big – problems, big big challenges, big questions like what is what is the ecological impact of such a thing if you were to build it? Uh, sure, it's it's generating power in a in a green way, but is it itself green, or would it be causing more harm just through its presence in the ocean? Uh-huh. F- furthermore, this sounds not unambitious. How are you going to pay for this? Yeah, so he was actually already in the process of raising money for a thing he didn't have clearance to build, but uh, it was he he figured it would be about. $20 billion to to build this thing. Uh, to me, that seems a little low, honestly, for a four-story floating airport that has two runways. $20 billion seems like it might actually be a little on the conservative side. But uh, according to some estimates, San Diego could lose out on as much as $100 billion in economic growth if it doesn't expand its airport by 2020. Huh. So if it costs $20 billion and you argue, hey, we're going to be out $100 billion if we don't build something... You're uh, technically making eighty billion dollars. Yeah, you're you're or you're at least saving yourself from an eighty billion dollar loss, <laughs> right? I mean, if if in fact all of those things are true, that's a big if. The plan, not surprisingly, was met with a lot of opposition. One of the biggest problems is that there's no regulatory agency for very large floating structures. There's there, there's no law or agency right. to to deal with that. You don't know who to ask permission. Right, exactly. Like, you, like there's not a light. You go to the <laughs> license office, and there's not a window for very large floating structures. <laughs> so you're kind of stuck. And uh, as of 2013, at least, England was still working to get permission to build and operate what was then being called the Oplex 2020. <laughs> yeah, I, you know. I don't name them. I just report on them. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if it's still like a, a a living proposal that's being pushed in San Diego. If we have any fans in San Diego who are aware of this, I welcome you to get in touch with us and let us know. Uh, all the most recent stuff I could find was from a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. I, I yeah. don't know. This- so it so it may have gone belly up. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, it, it might have been beached. Yeah. This this one more than even any of the more. others just rem- just reminds me too much of Waterworld. Honestly, okay. like for some reason, something about it reminds me of Waterworld. Well, to be fair, the desalination was for seawater and not for pee. Well, how? I mean, can you pee in the seawater? I mean, I have. Uh, will the station suspend people in cages over brine pits? Almost certainly. Okay. Uh, so. At any rate, this was uh, this was one of those things that that when I saw it, I was like, I can't believe I've never heard of this. I mean, granted, I live on the other side of the United States, mm-hmm. so it's not like it's an issue that is in the forefront of my mind. Have you ever flown into San Diego? Yes, a couple of times. Hmm. It is an exciting flight out, let me tell you, because you fly out over the ocean 
And uh, when you're flying in, you're coming in over the ocean, so that's kind of terrifying because uh-huh. you don't you don't land on the uh, on the land side of it. You actually go out over the Pacific, sure. turn back around, and then land on the uh, on the landing strip. At least from memory, that's the way it is. I've flown to, in on the West Coast several times on, at several different airports, so I might be mixing this up. But as, as I recall, it was pretty it was a pretty steep takeoff as well. I think for noise pollution purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I've flown in and out of San Diego a couple times. It's a lovely city, by the way. I highly recommend visiting it. It's one of my favorites in California. Yeah, I've yeah. actually never been there. It's fantastic. Yeah, me neither. Oh man, Mexican food in San Diego is amazing. Oh, I bet. Uh, phenomenal. But moving on to more floating airports, there's also been a couple of high-profile proposals in good old London. So Where I also, the Mexican food is probably not as good. It is awful. I have had Mexican food in London, and it is... Possibly the worst Mexican food I've ever had. Aww. It was also entertaining because I don't know if you know this. The people, the the Brits, they like they like spicy, 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 melt your face off Indian food, right? Mm-hmm. Which actually, it's really to be fair, is more like British colonial food. Uh-huh. But they love that. Yet their Mexican food was the most bland Mexican food I've ever had. Couldn't huh. understand it. Huh. At any rate, another issue they have besides a lack of uh, excellent Mexican restaurants in London is that – Not enough pork lard, I'm guessing. Probably not. Well, yeah, there's no shortage of pigs there. But uh, Heathrow Airport is really overtaxed. I mean big time. Mm-hmm. Super oh, yeah. busy airport. Oh, definitely. And it's also enormous. It is not laid out in a very easy way. You have to take different trains. Like if you land at Terminal 4 and you need to get to Terminal 2 – you're going to be taking a couple of trains um, to get there or a bus. It's not it's not a simple layout. And there's not a whole lot of room for expansion, although Heathrow has petitioned to build another uh, runway. It is not met with a lot of success. It's met with a lot of resistance because it's already kind of an issue with residents about, you know, noise pollution. The same reasons we've talked about already. Right. So there have been a couple of proposals for an alternative airport. Uh, in one case, what would be a supplemental airport? In another case, what would be a complete replacement for Heathrow? Both of which have shared the same name. Uh, the first proposal was officially called the London Britannia Airport, and it had the political backing of then London Mayor Boris Johnson. Oh, he's been in the news lately. Oh boy, howdy has he. Yep. Especially like the day we record this is just after he has been named the UK Foreign Secretary in the wake of the UK leaving the European Union or and, announcing its intention to leave the European Union. And a great number of politicians leaving office. Yes, uh Theresa May, the now new Prime Minister of the UK, came in and cleaned house. A couple of people resigned. A couple of people were sacked. And uh, Boris Johnson was given the role of foreign secretary. And lots of jokes followed. Boris Johnson has not always been known as being the most diplomatic of diplomats. And yet now he has a diplomatic job. I'll tell you more about Boris Johnson after we're uh, done with this episode. (laughs) So at any rate, he had, uh, he threw a lot of support in for this idea of the the London Britannia Airport, so much so that the locals began to refer it, to it as Boris Island. <laughs> it was going to be this uh, this airport built out on the estuary of the Thames, where the Thames meets the North Sea. Right. And it, the original one was, was going to be, I think, thirty miles outside of London, and was just going to be 
um, a, a relatively modest airport compared to the more recent proposal. It was going to be a four-runway airport. Yeah, one thing I found interesting, just as a side note, is that uh, the architecture firm behind this proposal for the London Britannia Airport was actually Gensler, who was the same firm that designed the Shanghai Tower that we talked about in our episode about skyscrapers and vertical cities. Yeah, that's... So uh, they're they're sort of like, uh, they seem out there in the forward-looking designs. Right. If you want to get some something that is uh, kind of taking the risky approach, then... Uh, Gensler seems to be like the name in some of those really, you know, futuristic looking and sounding designs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this one was formally rejected in 2014. Uh, and so it's it's kind of, I guess, dead in the water. But it was replaced by yeah. an even weirder plan. Yeah, which which emerged in 2013. So the 2013 proposal comes out the uh Airport Commission says no to the the previous version, the four runway version. And this one, also called the London Britannia Airport, so no confusion there, uh, is a six runway airport. So even larger than the previously announced proposal. But it would be built a bit further out in the estuary, uh, 50 miles outside of London. And it actually... Originally, there were two different plans. The first plan was the idea of a real floating airport, but eventually they deemed that that was impractical because the waters of the estuary are relatively shallow and it would only really work in deeper water. So instead, they're talking about essentially building an artificial island and putting the airport on top of it. So, so it would be Boris Island. Yes. And wouldn't, wouldn't technically be a floating airport anymore. It'd be an airport that's out on the water, but it would be like on its own little island. Um, estimated costs are somewhere around $60 billion or more for this Oof. project. Now, they would connect the airport to the mainland through a bridge for uh, vehicle traffic, mm-hmm. as well as an underwater light rail system to go back to London. And since it's 50 miles, it'd be a bit of a trek if you landed there. And this would be an actual replacement for Heathrow. It's not, this would be like Heathrow would be shut down Mm -hmm. and reclaimed by the city, turned into something else. And this would become London's new primary airport. You'd still have Gatwick, I imagine. But uh, yeah, kind of interesting. Um, And... The you know the fact that Heathrow is considered to be the worst airport in terms of noise pollution in all of Europe mm-hmm. means that there's at least some support for an airport that would be out over the water where that noise pollution wouldn't be bothering the residents and it would presumably improve the quality of life for a significant number of people living in London. Uh, so there's that argument. But a lot of people have said this is dependent upon a lot of factors that we can't be certain of and – we suspect that the bare minimum cost is going to be $60 billion. It may very well be that it balloons out of control once these other factors turn out to be stuff we didn't anticipate. Like getting a nice stable base for the airport takes a lot more work than they had thought it would. That's mm-hmm. a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um and, of course, uh, we also have a lot more opposition, not just political opposition. Heathrow clearly opposes the idea. They're like, uh, no, we don't like the idea of being replaced. Please stop. Give us, <laughs> give us another runway and stop talking about floating airports. And environmental agencies have also raised a lot of concerns. 
Uh, the World Wildlife Fund, to for example. To protect all of that precious life in the Thames estuary. Yeah. Well, you know. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to sound dismissive. Right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it, – I, I don't know how rich and varied and biodiverse the life in the estuary is, but I figure it would be less so with a giant airport. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it is worth protecting. So um, – Sorry for my jokes at the expense of the uh, the the bounteous nature of the Thames. The brine shrimp yeah. living inside the Thames estuary. Uh, yeah, so it, we may never see this come to pass. But again, we're getting into that real problem of these major cities having real issues at uh, hitting capacity for their their airports, and there's a need for more service, but there's a limit on the options. So it may come to be that within a, a decade or so that floating airports in a few areas are a thing because there's they're the best of all the available options that are out there. Or maybe we'll see a switch to other types of fast travel that are not air travel, and that will reduce our reliance upon air travel. So let's say the Hyperloop becomes a more um, realistic option. Yeah then you could see that at least for certain types of travel, like domestic travel or travel between countries that are very close together, it might not be as frequent. Or high-power ballistic passenger capsules. You, you mean shooting people out of a cannon? Maybe. Okay. Well, I have one last one to talk about. This one is a little bit of a cheat because it's not a runway that's floating. It's a terminal that's floating. Uh-huh. So it's it's the place where people go to gather before and after they're on a plane, uh-huh. not the place where planes take off and land, but still kind of cool. Uh, so back in 2014, the Ahmad Yani International Airport in Indonesia broke ground on an expansion that will include a floating terminal. Uh, so if it can operate safely... That might also give some credence to other people who want to try and pursue similar projects uh, to expand or replace airports in other cities. But if if it doesn't include the runway, a floating terminal doesn't seem all that inherently different than a boat. You yeah, know, like yeah. a cruise ship yeah. or and, something. And, and I actually like this idea. Like, the, like this is the idea out of all of this that kind of excites me because I'm like, well, if we can have floating buildings to uh, augment our cityscapes, that's that's rad. Like that. That's pretty okay. Especially like, if if you are if it's acceptable to walk in and have like an old sea dog style accent whenever you walk into the building. It see we're all into this. Yeah. You know, you instead of ringing a doorbell and saying, "Hey, how are you?" Be permission to come aboard. <laughs> permission granted. <laughs> and then you eat you eat sea, sea biscuits and and get food just, poisoning. Yeah, you get yeah. scurvy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it's not all wine and roses but you know it's got a it's got its own panache right at any rate this was one of those ideas that when i i saw the the article in cnn i thought i don't i don't know how i've never heard of any of this because i i love the retrofuturism of the popular mechanics piece mm-hmm. uh, i think that the proposals while i still have lots of questions about them are are interesting i don't necessarily think that they are all uh, realistic or pragmatic, but I love the the creative thought that goes into trying to solve a very difficult and very real problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't know that it's the right solution, but uh, you know it's it's a definitely a creative one. Yeah, I mean it's another one of those things that 
airports are one of the uglier parts of what we do. I, I don't mean like morally uglier, but it's just kind of like the, they're they're not one of the most pleasant artifacts of human civilization. Yet they're so incredibly necessary for the world to function as it does. Mm-hmm. What's the uh, nicest airport you've ever flown into? Because my mm. answer might surprise you. Uh, nicest. I I did like I liked the Keflavik Airport in Iceland. Oh, it was uh, it was just. It was nice. It was quaint. Cool. You know. Uh, what about you, Lauren? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very fond of Atlanta's airport. Atlanta's airport's not bad. It's yeah. it's really I feel like it's well organized relatively for an airport, you know. It, it's relatively easy to understand where you need to go, even if it takes a heck of a lot of walking to get there. Uh, right. Uh, there, there, there's one in the in the Midwest somewhere, either Detroit or Chicago. I want to say Detroit that has is phenomenal. A lovely like light tunnel that you travel through. It's like being in like Willy Wonka's a uh, tunnel of terror, but <laughs> but but better. Detroit is my favorite airport. Okay, maybe, maybe this is the one that I'm thinking of. They have like super fancy, futuristic looking bars there, where it's like. Like the architecture is amazing. They yeah, have a yeah. they have a light rail that takes you from one end of the terminal to the other. That is what I'm thinking of. Detroit yeah. is oh, that's a great airport. Surprising, it surprised me because I mean I had never been to Detroit before, and I, I had all the stereotypical uh, prejudice about Detroit. Went to the airport, thought this is the best airport I've been in. The second best uh, is not because of the amenities, but just because of the charm. Would be Kona, Hawaii, because it's all outdoors. Uh, you oh, you wow. land, uh-huh. you walk, you walk down a set of stairs from your airplane to the tarmac, and you walk. As up, our ancestors did, right? And yeah. it's all like the thatched uh, roof kind of little uh, pavilions that uh. you walk into. So it's all outside. If the weather's nice, it's lovely. Although the last time I flew out, it was pouring down rain. Um, but you know, who knows? Maybe in the future, we'll say the nicest airport I've ever been in was off the coast of such and such. That'd be kind of cool. Uh, so, guys, if you have any questions, queries, you have, you've got some comments about uh, this concept, maybe, again, if you're in San Diego and you know more about the current status of that proposal, write us, let us know what you think. Our email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com, or you can always drop us a line on social media. On Twitter, we are fwthinking. If you search FW Thinking in Facebook, our profile should pop right up. You can leave us a message there. We look forward to hearing from you, and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. 
Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those, too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And. Hmm. Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.